Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, November 20th, we're studying Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. St. Paul warns Titus concerning the false teachers and the false teaching that he must rebuke there in Crete. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Reverend Dr. Adam Kuntz. Dr. Kuntz serves as Assistant Professor of Exegetical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Kuntz, welcome back to Sharp Iron. It's great to be with you. Thank you. As we get started this morning, let's talk a little bit of context. We've only come through the first nine verses of this book. What do we need to know about what Paul's already said and the epistle as a whole that will help us into our text for today? It's easy to forget when you're reading the letters of Paul that he is not sitting in an office somewhere writing his ideas down about how things should be. He is an active missionary, and he's writing letters like this letter to Titus in order to have the churches stay on the right track or get back on the right track to keep the churches and the church at large healthy. The letter to Titus is one of the three what are called pastoral letters, along with 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, that are written by Paul to individuals, two to Timothy, who has a very close relationship with him, one to Titus. They're presumably younger men. Uh, They are definitely men who are working within Paul's mission, but have their own responsibilities. And Paul is trying to help clarify for them what they're about. And just before our passage, Paul is trying to help Titus identify how, how he can find good pastors, good overseers, for the churches on the island of Crete, which is in the Mediterranean, roughly between, if you were going southeast from Greece, between Greece and Israel. And Titus is there working on Crete, and Paul has just given him a set of qualifications, very much like 1 Timothy 3, to identify what a good pastor would look like. And so now he's going to identify what the opponents look like in this text. <laughs> That's right. So it's I mean, the opposite in some respects of what he's just identified. I'll go ahead and read the text for us. This is Titus 1, verses 10 through 16. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. That is Titus 1, verses 10 through 16. Pastor Kuntz, the the text starts, Paul identifies many who are insubordinate, which reminds me a little bit of the conversation I had with Pastor Adam Filipek yesterday. We were talking about how Paul begins by identifying himself as a servant or a slave of God. And, and the importance of a slave living under the master and doing what the master says to do and saying what the master says to say. Paul, in the in the qualifications for elders, he, he starts by telling Titus that he, he left him there in Crete to put what remained in order. And it seems that this word insubordinate relates to both of those things. What What's going on with the, the insubordination, these many, and, and their empty talk and deception? Yeah. That's a great question, because I think it gets at the heart of the problem spiritually when we talk about insubordination or rebelling against order, whether it's in the church 
or in creation generally. And that is that the source of insubordination is very deep because it is located in the same place that Satan's rebellion against the Lord was located, which is in pride. And insubordination becomes in these churches on this island of Crete in the first century the expression of pride. But pride has fruits and characteristic ways of being, as conversely, humility in Christ has its own ways of being. And Paul describes himself as a slave because Paul is not insubordinate. That doesn't mean that he has no charge of anything. He gives direction to Titus and through Titus to the churches. But Paul is subordinate to Christ. Paul is a slave of Christ. He takes orders from Christ. And so everyone in Christ's kingdom is subordinate to the king, and we each have our different roles. Those who are insubordinate may have this or that particular issue in the church, but the problem is not so much that, oh, you know, they they ask the pastor a challenging question in Bible class or something. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that their pride issues in this uh, rebellion against order, and you can tell how they are rebellious, insubordinate, by the fact that when they talk or when they go about you know, their business, it is vain or empty or fruitless or deceptive. That is that they say one thing and they do another, right? Or they promise you something and they never deliver on their promises. And that, that notion of vanity that you can observe in people's lives um, is something that throughout the Bible, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, you can use to tell who is false, who is uh, lying to you, who is, uh, even if he's inside the church, worthless, because what he says and what he does will completely contrast with one another, and what he says will come to pass will be completely in vain. Uh, concerning that that insubordination, where, like, what is the order of the church? I mean, this is a, like, is it, you know, we've talked about the words for, for pastor, and one of them being bishop or overseer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and you said, you know, well, it's not when the, a parishioner, say, asks a pastor a challenging question. That's not insubordination. What, like, what is the proper ordering of the church? Is it is it found in, say, a church hierarchy, kind of like the, the papists have, or the Eastern Orthodox? Is it, is it found? What, what is the ordering of the church so that we don't fall into insubordination? Yeah, the ordering of the church flows out of the proclamation of the gospel. So it's all centered around the gospel and exists for the sake of the gospel. Paul wants the churches to be in order so that they do not tolerate in those churches unsound teaching that is teaching that would destroy the body of Christ that has been gathered by the gospel. And in that, in that proclamation of the gospel, uh, there are ministers commissioned by Christ uh, to proclaim that word, and there are hearers who hear God's word and believe it. That's really the church. It is preachers and hearers. The particular form that takes, how we make decisions about the roof of the church building or how we train pastors exactly, or who ranks above whom and by what measure among the clergy or something is not spelled out in Scripture. And that's why we should not be narrower than Scripture is. Usually churches are narrower than Scripture is, and they say, oh, well, you have to have the Bishop of Rome, or you have to have the Bishop of Constantinople, or you have to uh, have multiple elders in some Baptist churches, or whatever it might be. Scripture doesn't specify. It does specify that there is an office of the ministry, and that there is a general royal priesthood, and those are sort of the two groups in the Church. How decisions get made about carpet or the roof or something is really up to that church and that place and time to decide. When Paul gives Titus or Timothy instruction, he really does not give a whole lot of instruction about, um, you're going to you know, make this decision, but that guy's going to make that decision. He doesn't set up a bureaucracy. He sets up an office of proclaiming the gospel that is to be occupied by good men, and he specifies what good means in that list that precedes today's passage. You mentioned within the church there are the preachers and the hearers. As as Paul speaks to Titus in verse 
10 and talks about the many who are insubordinate. I'm reminded of a distinction that we we looked at, I think, in 1 Timothy between a false preacher and a false hearer and, and the need to treat the false hearer with gentleness. I mean, you talked about someone who would ask a challenging question to a pastor or someone who might come to a, a pastor and express something that is is false. The need for a pastor to recognize this may be a one who's been taught falsely and someone to treat with yeah. gentleness. The, the insubordination, I mean, that's a pretty strong word. Are, are we yeah. talking here more about the false preachers? Are there false hearers involved? And there I'm thinking Second Timothy, where Paul talks about, you know, the hearers who want their itching ears scratched. Where, where is this insubordination showing up? Yeah, I think that you're talk, you're definitely looking in Titus 1 more at false preachers inside the church. I mean, I think a lot of people maybe think the early church was just, you know, all light and peace and joy. <laughs> but what you see if you dig down into Paul's letters is that there are people from what we might call other denominations or preaching other doctrines other than apostolic doctrine, scriptural doctrine. And whereas today, maybe if someone wants to preach something falsely, he can set up his own church building. Uh, here, you'd have to figure, you know, if you're a Lutheran, you have to imagine that someone would come into the building and begin to preach that you, you know, have to uh, be in communion with the Pope to be saved, right? Because the situation is much more fluid than we understand. Uh you have churches that are presumably rather small, and you can tell from, for instance, Third John that that many of the people who are preaching uh, are moving around as Paul himself moves around, and so the rebukes that are that Paul commands Titus to issue, I believe here are of preachers. Uh, that is, you cannot preach that way. You cannot say those things in the church. That's false, because uh, you can tell that they're people who talk, these false preachers, because they're, they're empty talkers, uh, and they have to be silent. If I'm just hearing and kind of misunderstanding stuff, uh, that's one thing. But if I'm going to take it upon myself to speak publicly in the congregation, that's something else. And that's, you know, that's what James is talking about in James, I think it's three, uh, where he says, those of us who teach will be judged more strictly, because it's one thing to listen and to try to understand and process it's a whole other thing for you to say, yes, I will teach God's Word. That's very serious, and not just anybody can do it. And these people are taking it upon themselves to preach falsely. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the, the insubordination. They're, they're taking mm-hmm. it upon themselves, right. acting as if they're the master, that it's their Word that counts, rather than God's Word that counts, receiving their orders from Him, like Paul, like Titus. They're insubordinate. They've got this vain speech. It's empty. They're deceptive. And and Paul singles out particularly for Titus those of the circumcision party. Who is the circumcision party? Those are people who believe it is necessary to be circumcised, that is, to practice some form of Jewish law in order to be saved. And they are familiar to you from some of the disputes in Acts, they should be also be familiar from the problems that Paul faces in a variety of places, uh, Colossae to some extent, but really in Galatia. So he addresses this at length in Galatians. It seems to me, this is a speculation, that they are Paul's main doctrinal opponents everywhere he goes, which is why he has to explain so carefully, even to people he doesn't know, like the churches in Rome, what his teaching is. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, meaning I'm not ashamed of what I preach as true. And he has to explain very carefully how his teaching doesn't lead to lawlessness, but, you know, you're not justified by circumcision. The reason he has to go into that at such length, especially in Romans, is because people who believe it's necessary to become in some way Jewish in order to be saved, in addition to believing in Christ, those folks are everywhere. Sometimes they follow Paul, sometimes they seem to precede Paul, but they're everywhere that his mission is, and they're speaking another gospel. And that, I mean, I think that makes sense in terms of when you look at Paul's ministry as a whole, he generally gets to a new place. The first place he goes is the synagogue, where there's going to be people who are who are Jewish. And so, I mean, that that's a part of his 
his world and his ministry is that there are a lot of people who are circumcised already, and that was a big part of their identity prior to becoming Christian. So that, I mean, I, I guess my point is, I think that makes sense that that would be his primary doctrinal opponent almost everywhere he goes. Now, having said that, I don't know, and I've only been in Smithville for, for the 10 years of my ministry, but I don't know that I've ever had anybody show up in church and demand that people be circumcised if they want to be a part of this church. So how is this applicable today? What What's the, if that was such a big doctrinal opponent of Paul in the first century, is it still a doctrinal opponent of Christianity today? And if so, where do we see it? Yeah, you would have to look for anywhere that Bible teaching is replaced by the inventions of men. And because that is possible anywhere for any preacher, a preacher has to look for himself to make sure that he is true to Scripture rather than to his own imagination of how things should be and what people should do. And you would also have to look for examples where rules uh, made by men are imposed as if uh, they are necessary for salvation. Um, this is definitely part of a lot of debates in the Church, uh, because the Church has to have some kind of rules, but it is certainly part of debates over worship styles, over mask policies and government mandates. The underlying theological issues are usually a lot deeper than, you know, what news sources do I believe? And I think they concern the gravity with which we take certain um, outward marks, right? So can I go to church and, you know, it's a Lutheran church, but they don't sing any Luther hymns ever. Is it still Lutheran, right? And that's kind of a silly example. But the issue here is the constant human tendency that Jesus rebukes in the Pharisees to ignore God's commandments and replace them with men's qualifications, right? And it's not that men's qualifications are per se evil. They're only evil when they replace God's commandments. So Paul doesn't oppose, for instance, circumcision categorically for anybody. And he's not telling people who are ethnically Jewish, no, you can't circumcise your sons. He's saying you can't impose that as a requirement for salvation. It can't become a barrier between someone and Christ. And that is kind of the basic theological issue. And it's something that crops up really perennially through church history. In the New Testament, it seems a little weird to people because they're not familiar with someone saying this. So you, you can find this actual teaching within some elements of Messianic Judaism today. So <laughs> what sure. is, what is old is always new, you know. Right, right, right. And I think, I mean, that that connects a lot. The, the way that you laid that out connects to this matter of insubordination. And so when we when we demand, if I can use the other way, when we demand subordination to the commandments of men, as if that's going to save, yeah, then right. we're actually being insubordinate because we're being insubordinate right. toward God. Yes. Right. Exactly. Yeah, and I, that, that's a great way to say it, because—and the issue here is that the person may not say, you know, for salvation—I'm I'm requiring this for salvation, but the effective force of it, you know, whatever verbiage is using, the force of it is, well, you're not really a Christian if you don't do X, Y, or Z thing that I'm requiring, right? And that happens so frequently through uh, Church history because—precisely because Human beings are always seeking in their sin to be justified by something other than faith. I mean, it just it, <laughs> it's, it's offensive to a lot of people on some level that you're justified by what someone else did and by trusting in him. And they need something else to hang on to, and so that's why we're so good at making stuff up. Well, and, and when we make stuff up, we think we can actually do it. I mean, you know, like, I, mean, I <laughs> yeah, think that, you know, we, yeah. we make up these rules that we think we can do— and and we end up I can't remember who I was having this conversation with recently, but but anytime we start to to do this, we always end up replacing God's good law. Mm -hmm. We go beyond mm -hmm. it, we go farther than it, we replace it with something that we've made up, usually in an attempt to to start at least I think we start there to try to keep what he gave. But when we start to do this, we always go past what he gave, and we end up creating a law of our own that sure we can keep, but but again, it's not really God's law. And so it's 
you're in insubordination again to, to use Paul's language right. here. Exactly. And you, you put yourself because the issue here is that the, the local what it might look like is, oh, you have a problem with Pastor Titus. But what's going on cosmically is that you have a problem with the way that God has ordained salvation for man. And it always ends up with vanity, but also with hypocrisy, which is why our little section today so much resembles a lot of the discussion of Pharisees in the Gospels. The problem with the Pharisees isn't that they love God's law too much. That's not what legalism is. Legalism always results in an invented law, which is put forth as if it is a divine law. And because the people can't keep it, Jesus says about the Pharisees, you, bu- you bind burdens too heavy to bear, but you yourself will not lift a finger. Because the guy that's making the rule up doesn't really care about the rule, he just cares about control. And so, I mean, to go back to what I was saying at the beginning about the, uh, you know, I haven't had anybody come in demanding circumcision at Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, yeah. Texas, but the, the place that I should be looking for it is first in my own mouth and in my own preaching, yeah, right. so that right. I'm not that preacher who is being insubordinate by demanding obedience to something that God has not demanded obedience. That's where, that's where it starts, exactly. is, in, is in my exactly. own mouth. Right. Right. So, so right. And, and, and Pastor Kuntz, then, with, with that, what, where, because I think you could you could fall off too far. I mean, for example, and I'm just thinking maybe like a, a new member class or the quote requirements that we have for someone to come a mem- to become a mm-hmm. member of our church. People do need to learn the Christian faith. So, it, I mean, like we can't fall off too far and say, well, then, okay, Pastor, you can't require anything of people. There are commandments that we should and need to lay before people and require subordination too, right? Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, because what we're not talking about is ignoring or neglecting to teach God's law. We're saying that when men make stuff up, that's the first thing that goes out the door is the divine law, God's law, Scripture, right? Um, of course, we're going to teach Scripture because that's how Christians are made, by hearing right? By hearing God's word. So if I say, well, you know, you need to know uh, this amount of scripture uh, or, you know, scriptural teaching as it's summarized in the catechism, for instance, in order to be a member of the church, that's simply asking Christians to be Christians. You are asking them to be subordinate to you when you make stuff up and then require that. But for a pastor to preach God's word and require the members of the church to adhere to that word is simply to ask Christians to be Christians, which should be the most natural thing in the world. Yeah, yeah. Ask Christians to be Christians, and and they they should do it, right? I mean, preach preach yeah, the word. Right. To use the language right. of, of Paul to Timothy, preach the word in season and out of season, and and the Christians will hear it and believe it, no right. doubt, no exactly. doubt. So so Paul continues then in, in verse eleven, which is a couple minutes here before the break. So let, let's pick up verse eleven. Mm-hmm. They must be silenced. They're upsetting whole families by teaching. For shameful gain, what they ought not to teach. I mean, a couple things. The the matter, shut them up, Titus. Silence them, and then mm-hmm. notice. I mean, it just, this always seems to happen when Paul talks about false teachers. Not only are they teaching falsely, but there's some kind of ulterior motive, and it's usually financial. Yep. And that's what's going on here. It seems as well. Yeah, exactly. Because we've talked a lot about their false teaching, but you don't just need. Uh, their teaching as a witness to their falsehood, to their evil, you also have their life. And their life is characterized by troubling people, upsetting them, bothering them. They do this too in Galatia, uh, troubling and upsetting the Gentile Christians who aren't circumcised. And they also do it for their bellies, right? So Paul will say elsewhere uh, of false teachers, their God is their belly. All they do is try to satisfy themselves. And so they take and take and take and take. That's the pattern also of the, quote, super apostles in Second Corinthians. Paul's pattern is very different. He doesn't take and take and take from people. And if they don't have money, he works and supports himself so that the church is not burdened. So you can tell from their pattern of life, they're not willing to give an inch of their comfort away, but they will take from you all day to, in Galatia, enslave, the, enslave you to themselves. And there, I mean, that's Paul looking out for 
those who would be falsely taught. The, the example that I brought up right. earlier, Paul's looking right. out precisely for those people and wants Titus to do the same. These people need to be silenced lest they mislead others into right. the same false teaching, the same false belief. That's that I just got done teaching the sixth petition in catechism class, and that's what the devil, the world, and our sinful nature always looking to lead us into is false right. belief. And that's what Paul's concerned with here, and he wants Titus to be concerned with the same. We're going to go ahead and take our break here on Sharper Iron. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, November 20th. We're looking at Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. We've got the Reverend Dr. Adam Kuntz with us. He serves as assistant professor of exegetical theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Kuntz, prior to the break, we left off after verse 11. Verse 12 of this chapter is one of the stranger verses, if I can say it that way, in the <laughs> scriptures. <laughs> Paul, yeah. Paul quotes a Cretan prophet. I'll, I'll read it again. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Now, before we talk about what the quote actually is, let's just talk about the matter of Paul quoting a Cretan prophet, who presumably is pagan. We know he quotes the Old Testament, yeah. he draws from that, but what's he doing quoting a Cretan prophet? And he does so, I didn't, he says, this testimony is true. So I mean, what's right. going on here? <laughs> so he's quoting probably, probably, Epimenides, um, who is a sort of uh, sage of the Cretans. And because we're in the first generation of church life on Crete, Epimenides is necessarily a pagan. Um, what Paul is quoting is a characterization of Cretans by a Cretan as a group. That could be looked at by modern people as racist. I'm not honestly for myself sure what that word means anymore because it's used so often. It's kind of evacuated of meaning. But what Epimenides is doing to his own people is making a characterization of his people. They're this way, they're that way. Um, it would be as if I said, uh, all people from Appalachia are quick to anger and know how to use guns. Is that true of literally everybody that I grew up with up and down you know, the Appalachian mountain chain? Probably not. Um, is gun ownership common? It sure is. So, um, so it's a group characterization. I think for Paul, it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek. Um, you know, this testimony is true. Um, that's sort of the punchline there at the beginning of 13. But what he is saying is that, uh, you know, uh, one of them, that it, that's what it literally is in Greek, one of them, a prophet of their own, said, and prophet is also sort of tongue-in-cheek. I think a lot of times, maybe because of how we read Scripture in public, I think we're missing a little bit of the humor. Um, and I think there's a little bit of humor here, because you have to think about it. It's not like Paul thinks all Cretans are evil, because he's having Titus appoint elders for churches on Crete, right? <laughs> but he is saying that uh, this is, uh, you know, this is characteristic behavior, and uh, Epimenides himself witnessed to it, so uh, he wants it to stop on Crete. Um, yeah. Well, so I mean, so in quoting a pagan prophet, Paul is not mm -hmm. giving sort of credence to any sort of heathen religion or any sort of credence to anything else that we said Epimenides said. Epimenides, it, yeah. He's just simply saying, hey, look, there's this, this saying out there recognized by one of their own that this is kind of what life is on Crete is like. So right. don't, don't be surprised <laughs> by this, Titus, essentially something like that. Right. 
Right, right, right. Yeah, exactly. Because uh, he's not talking about something theological like, oh, uh, you know, Heraclitus said that the universe was made out of fire. That's true. Paul's not saying something like that. Um, He's taking basically an everyday observation about a people group by someone he thinks knows something about it and saying in a somewhat tongue-in-cheek manner, uh, hey, this guy knew what he was talking about. So, I mean, it's more like a we we just got done with the book of proverbs not that long ago and i think i, I think i missed you for that one pastor pastor Kuntz. but but the one of the things we talked about was that proverbs are different than say promises they're things that generally hold true but it's not rock solid so paul's not trying to throw all the residents of crete under the bus or something here he's simply nope. trying to identify for titus the main problem that he's going to face it's going to be pretty common Look out for it. This is, I mean, just putting before him, this is kind of the way it is there on Crete. So watch out for it. Right. And uh, I think another observation is that, especially when we talk about race, we're thinking uh, whatever validity you think it has, however you think about race, we're often talking about genetics. And something to be clear about here is that a Cretan is not actually an ethnically specific thing, definitely not in a city. That is, you can see from just talking to the circumcision party, there are both Jews and Gentiles involved here. So this is more of an observation about, you know, people from New York talk fast. Uh, That really, you know, I don't know, (laughs) you really can't say that's racist exactly because pretty much anybody could be from New York, uh, genetically speaking. So it's an observation really about life on Crete. I think you said it well. And uh, he doesn't want Titus to be surprised by it. Hmm. Or, or almost like the way, say, Americans might be viewed by Europeans, or, or vice mm-hmm. versa, the way Europeans yeah. are, re- are looked at by Americans. Again, that has nothing to do with race, but it uh, may be more of a matter of uh, culture or place, rather. Culture, yeah. So, yeah. okay, so, so we've, we, we've kind of looked at that. Paul says, this is true. And therefore, then he says, therefore, rebuke them sharply. Who's the, I mean, we were talking about, False teachers, false learners. Who's the who's the them that needs to be rebuked here? Yeah, he's. I I believe he's talking specifically about the false teachers. Okay, because rebuke indicates guilt. Um, stop it. Now it's possible that he could also tell the hearers stop listening to them. That's obviously implicit in not allowing the false teachers to go on talking in the church. But I think this is directed particularly at false teachers, um, because what he wants them to do is to just stop. Uh, He wants the people, however, um, to be sound in the faith. Um, So it's possible, I think you could kind of read it either way. Um, I think the rebuke is going to fall on those who are talking, um, who may or may not be what we would call today clergy. They could just be church members who are speaking publicly. You have a similar sort of chaotic situation in Corinth, for instance. All kinds of people are talking. And so, you know, the distinction between preachers and hearers kind of breaks down at that point. But he wants them overall to be rebuked so that they can be sound or whole or healthy in their faith. Okay, and that's, and that's I think, part of the reason I was asking that is because the rebuke them sharply is tied to that purpose the, or in result right. that they would be sound in the faith, which isn't always something that we would think about for a false teacher, although it's it's certainly there in the scriptures. I think sometimes we we see we're prone to see a false teacher as a as an outright enemy. And we don't want to lose right. the fact that there is a you know I mean there's a demonic nature to false teaching that can't be ignored. At the same time, that false teacher is caught up in that, and we would, as Christians, desire for him, that false teacher, this same thing, that that false teaching right. would, would not be believed by him, and that he, too, would actually be sound in the faith. So, I mean, it, 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 it's for them as well, even if maybe the odds of that happening seem less likely to us, that's the purpose for the false teacher as well. We want them to return to the truth. Right, and I think that Paul only speaks of false teachers uh, as sharply as he does in the cases where he sees their evil motivations bearing evil fruit in the Church. But if someone is simply, let's say, mistaken, or has never discussed the doctrine of baptism and knows nothing about baptism or about 
the end of days or whatever it might be, you know, you don't need to treat him in the same manner that you would treat somebody who knows better or has evil motivations and yet continues preaching falsehood. Paul continues then, so rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. What are these What are these Jewish myths that he's referring to? And then what are the, the commands of people who turn away from the truth? The Jewish myths are going to be stories of which we have a fairly large number, uh, usually beginning from the time between the Testaments, that is, from about the 3rd or 4th century uh, before Christ, continuing down to the 1st century uh, AD. And so you have some witnesses, you get things like this in, you know, the first book of Enoch, for instance, which is widely discussed uh, on the internet, but there are lots of other things. And what they're going to do is they'll present and sometimes, let's say, fill in things that the Bible itself doesn't talk about uh, for its for good reason, um, but they'll fill in the story, they'll add things, um, you know, just kind of made-up stuff. And what happens here is that when people are seduced by false teaching, they're both enslaved to those who are talking to them for shameful gain, and they, they believe a story about the world and about themselves that is wrong. And in this case, the story about themselves and about the world, including a story that says, hey, if you're not circumcised, you need to be circumcised, brother, because otherwise you're going to go to hell. That story is part of these Jewish myths that Paul rebukes. On the basis of those myths, they also hear and begin to believe uh, commands of people who turn away from the truth. So it there's, this is a case where your doctrine, your just straight doctrine, how did the world come to be? Who made the world? Is the world sinful? Uh, who redeemed the world? Those doctrines are the basis of church practice. And when you have false doctrine, you also have false practice, which is what those commands are aiming to produce. They're going to produce false practice on the basis of the false doctrine of Jewish myth. Since you you brought it up, just briefly, the those books or those myths that come between the testaments that would we would often refer to that as the apocrypha, correct? Well, or are you thinking? Are you the, you saying something else? Yeah, there's what's in the apocrypha, which is generally commended in the church. I mean, okay. it's, it's it's good to read. It's helpful to read. I think especially First and Second Maccabees are helpful for historical purposes. Um, so I'm not talking about the Apocrypha. I'm talking about a lot of other stuff that isn't in the Bible, gotcha. but is written about the same time as the Apocrypha. Yeah. Okay, good. I, I wanted to make that clarification, so that, so because that, I know that, I mean, you know, CPH publishes a, a Lutheran edition of it. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. right. So, yeah, yeah I want to make sure we're, we're clear on, on what those Jewish myths are. And two, I think, I mean, I, and I think if, if I was understanding you right, part of that Jewish myth then would, would be this idea that you did have to be circumcised in order to be a Christian, even though that may not have been written down in that intertestinal period. That just flows from it then in, in what's being circulated and falsely taught here in Crete, correct? Yeah, that's right. And because you can see some of the outcome of this change within what we now call Judaism when you get uh, eventually rabbinic Judaism with the Talmud. Um, for instance, they're going to change the whole idea of how how you are reckoned as a Jew. Uh, biblically, you're reckoned as a Jew based on who your father is. Uh, but in rabbinic Judaism down to today, you're reckoned as a Jew based on who you're mother is. So they completely changed the significance of genealogy, for instance. And all of that is going on in Paul's own lifetime, and he would be very familiar, based on his education and upbringing, with Jewish myths. Paul continues in verse 15 with a almost proverbial type of saying, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. What? How is it that to the who are the pure and how is it all things are pure to them and then who are these defiled ones and that nothing is pure to them the key to understanding this is looking at where else paul and then after him the rest of the scriptures use terms like purity 
and defilement. For instance, in the Gospels, you have talk of purity and defilement in connection with how Jesus and his disciples eat, but without following all of the mythical traditions about how you have to wash your hands and how you have to clean the cups and stuff like that. Okay. So when you're talking about purity and defilement, I believe that he's, Paul is referring specifically to what you're allowed to eat or touch and what you're not allowed to eat or touch. And for a Christian who is pure, all of God's creation is pure, right? So we can tell a false teacher because he's going to forbid something that God has created to be received with thanksgiving, whether food or in other places, uh, you know, forbidding marriage even. Uh, is something that some of the false teachers, Paul's opponents, do. So I think he's talking here, he's talked about circumcision, but the other marker, and you see it also in Galatians, the other marker of the circumcision party is that Jews and Gentiles don't eat meals together. And uh, certain foods, obviously, according to Jewish religious law, are also forbidden to be eaten. And those are taken as divinely commanded forever, and therefore, you know, for the pure man, he can eat pork without his conscience being defiled. But to the one who has been told it's sinful to eat pork, this is wrong, you are shaming the Lord when you do this. And people understand this, especially if you were raised believing that something was wrong, and then you learn from the Bible that it wasn't. You still feel conflicted. You get a little twist in your gut when you do it, even though you know it's okay. You know, So if you were told that alcohol is totally sinful, don't touch your drop ever, um, you know, growing up in church, which is very, there's plenty of churches that say that. Um, and then, you know, you become a Lutheran, for instance, and we have wine at the Lord's Supper. You, you know, it's okay. The pastor told it, you it was okay. You're a Lutheran now. It's fine. But you're still going to feel weird about it because that, that false teaching about food or drink has an effect on people. And so the person who is eating or drinking what he's been told is evil is going to, his conscience is defiled because even though his conscience is wrong, it still shames him and accuses him as he eats and drinks what should be received with thanksgiving. Mm. That's the way that Paul wrote. And I mean, you were talking earlier about how this seems to be a theme in all of Paul's letters. Paul writes very similarly, perhaps in a more a positive way of speaking, in 1 Timothy 4. You know, he talks about mm-hmm. those who would forbid marriage and require abstinence from certain foods. And then he says instead, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer that would be that would be the to the pure everything or all things are pure but then to the right. defiled it's the opposite and he says right. there so what's the i mean what what's the cure to this what's the cure to a, a defiled conscience and mind yeah the cure is and the cure is sound teaching because we're not talking about oh i you know i'm not used to eating this uh, it grosses me out we're not talking about your gag reflex based on what you're used to eating or, or you like to eat. We're talking about, I'm eating this or I'm drinking this. And, you know, I was, I was told my whole life that eating or drinking animal products was evil. And now somebody's saying, Hey, here, have this burger. You know, uh, what's happening in my conscience is that uh, my conscience is in conflict with what I'm doing. And Paul doesn't actually say that that's how a Christian lives. You know, he says, I serve, my God with a clear conscience, right? And so your conscience uh, works whether or not the stuff in it is sound or true. So the, the cure for a defiled conscience is the truth. First of all, that your sins are forgiven for the sake of Christ. Second of all, that Christ has not forbidden you to, you know, eat or drink anything. Um, he instead commands you to receive these things with thanksgiving. So when the conscience is defiled, there's a combination of forgiveness and also wholesome teaching that has to go on so that that conscience can be repaired, uh, amended, healed. Because otherwise, what happens with people's consciences is that they're constantly accusing themselves on the wrong basis, or they don't know that they've been forgiven and they become despairing or maybe even prideful, and then reject the Lord altogether. So even on things that seem like minor issues, like is it okay to drink alcohol, uh, let's say even only at the Lord's Supper, you know, these sorts of questions, 
those have to be decided by God's word because the conscience lives out of truth or falsehood, but something is going to be telling you whether it's right or wrong. So we want the truth to tell you whether it's right or wrong. Does And I, I don't think this is the issue in, in Titus, but elsewhere in Paul, he talks about those who are weak and strong. And I think he uses the words weak and strong faith, but yep. maybe yep. we could talk about weak conscience, strong conscience. Does that and again, I think this goes beyond what, what's happening here in Titus, but but since it's in that same realm, how does that play into our lives, particularly as, as Christians? What I mean, what if I've got, what if there's someone who's, who maybe doesn't have a, like a defiled conscience, but it's a weak conscience? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it does. Uh, because, well, I think they're totally related. I mean, I think the weak, in the case of Romans or 1 Corinthians, the weak are those whose conscience is actually more tender than it needs to be. Hmm. They think that if you touch anything that has anything to do with any pagans whatsoever, you are endangering your salvation, okay? And Paul wants the strong in Romans and 1 Corinthians to bear with the weak, bear with their, you know, uh, ongoing inability to see what is actually okay. And uh, you, so it's, it's very much related because the weakness there, weakness in faith, is actually being overly tender in one's conscience, which is not something that Paul's going to condemn, even though it's implicit in Romans and 1 Corinthians, and it's explicit here, that they need to be taught what is truly sound, what God's Word actually says, so that they can become stronger in their faith. Right, so the, the cure, again, is, and that the word for sound doctrine that we get in the pastoral epistles is more like healthy doctrine good right. good yep. doctrine exactly it, it it cures that that's that's the image that's there and so the again the when when a def- conscience is defiled or when a conscience is overly tender it is the true word of god that is needed which which right. paul is going to get to in this epistle here he's he's still you know we'll get to the sound doctrine in chapters two and three particularly here he's still dealing with the matter of false teaching the the text for today verse 16 concludes they that is the false teachers the defiled conscience ones they profess to know god but they deny him by their works they are detestable disobedient unfit for any good work strong language again what's yeah. what's this they they on the one hand their mouth says they know god but their works show opposite? What's what's the dynamic at play? Yeah, and people get confused about this because, um, and, it, and it, it's understandable, and because people don't want to come off as arrogant, but people get very confused between, on the one hand, knowing that as a Christian, you still commit sin and need to repent of sin. That is one thing, and that is true, right? On the other hand, Scripture talks differently about how a false teacher's works deny what he says with his lips. And that's a much more serious accusation, and it's not something as simple as saying, you know, I repent of my sin, you know, I am sorry for my sin. Um, And so Paul is not condemning people simply because, you know, they sin, and all sin is contrary to God's will, and, you know, that's kind of obvious. The case here is that they say that they know who God is, but their works, their obsession with power, their desire to enslave their hearers, all of the things that they're doing show that they don't know the God who has freed mankind in Jesus Christ. They don't know him. Otherwise, their ways and their works would resemble his. You know, so when Paul is talking about how he operates, he operates like Jesus does. If someone needs something, he helps them. If they don't have enough money, he'll support himself so that they are not burdened. He gives of himself as Christ gave of himself. The false teacher is known by how he is, which is a way opposite to Christ. Well, and that's that's not all that different from, again, the, the positive picture that he gave us in the previous text. You think about the qualifications that he lists for the overseer, for the elder, for the pastor— I mean, a lot of it deals with how he conducts himself. It, that mm-hmm. where is it? Verse verses seven and following. All those things. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard, violent, greedy for gain. None of those things. Instead, hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined, etc. And again, we we talked about this a little bit yesterday. It doesn't mean that the pastor is sinless. 
because he's not. Right. <laughs> the pastor right. is a sinner who, who receives forgiveness for, from Christ. But, and again, maybe to, to try to tie this with insubordination, too, when, when you're living under a master, your, your life starts to look like what the master does and says himself— that should be true of the pastor, and and when it's not, then I mean now you're you're dealing in the realm of false teacher here. So it's I, I think I said it kind of jokingly at the beginning, but it, it's true to a degree that that on the one hand you've got the qualifications for overseer. That's what his life looks like. When your life isn't qualified, that's what it starts to look like in this text. Right, and you have something that is the mirror image, the sort of evil twin of the picture that Paul paints in uh, 2 Timothy, or I'm sorry, 1 Timothy 3, when he talks about the knowledge of Scripture and what Scripture is for, or is it, I'm sorry, it's 2 Timothy 3, that's right. Um, When he talks about Scripture in 2 Timothy 3, it's breathed out by God, Uh, and then he goes on in 2 Timothy 3, 17, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Right. So where does a pastor's fitness come from? It comes from knowledge of Scripture, use of Scripture, the sound teaching of Scripture. When the man is a false teacher, he becomes the opposite of what he should be, and he's unfit for any good work. He becomes a useless instrument, right? He becomes, uh, you know, some sort of tool that is completely bent out of shape. Just throw the thing away. And so the rebuke that Titus has to issue is a rebuke to instruments that, you know, I mean, I guess if I bend something badly enough, it's not going to do the job that I need it to do, but it might do some damage to somebody. Hmm. So uh, Titus needs these folks out of office before they do any more damage. Uh, a strong warning that's that's throughout this text. We've got about two minutes, Pastor Coons. Give us a, a summary, I mean, with all this, this language of, of warning, give us Give some good news. Tie it, tie it to Christ and his, his saving <laughs> yeah. work for us. Yeah, yeah. Well, the warning is strong because the stakes are so high, because the stakes are actually people's salvation. People are saved by sound teaching. People are damned. They go to hell when their itching ears hear the false teaching that every sinner naturally loves. And Paul's passion for the Church and for the Churches in Crete and for the Cretans is that they would only hear sound teaching in the Church that they would not be deceived, so that they can be led on the right way, so that they can hear the voice of Jesus in Jesus' under-shepherd. And, you know, faith comes by hearing. So they need to hear the right stuff, the good stuff, the true stuff, and they're going to hear that from Titus as he follows the instructions of Paul. Reverend Dr. Adam Kuntz serves as Assistant Professor of Exegetical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana helping us this morning with Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. Dr. Coons, thanks for being our guest today. Hey, thanks a lot. False doctrine hurts. False doctrine is not the healthy, life-giving doctrine. It must be rebuked. Those who teach it must be rebuked so that they would return to the sound doctrine and so that the sound, healthy, life-giving doctrine in Christ would be proclaimed for the forgiveness and salvation of all who believe. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.